In the ring with Eusebius Merkaiser. Eusebius Merkaiser. If you were away over the last week or so, welcome back to the world of work. If you are lucky enough to be employed at all, and if you have not been away, I hope you managed to sneak in some rest while working. We've had so many public holidays that I actually thought what it'd be nice to do, welcoming you back after a little bit of an hiatus, is to reflect on these public holidays because. Actually, unlike bank holidays that you have in the UK, these are not public holidays or bride days. They are really important commemorative days, and we can be forgiven, given all the stress in our country, that we tend to turn them into an opportunity to sleep in, to see friends and family, to relax, to go away if we can afford to. But there are some significant political and other questions that are raised that are questions worth returning to when we do have the energies to do so. And I hope that now being Tuesday, you are in a position to begin to do some of the reflection you don't want to do on a public holiday. And the two days I want to reflect on and say stuff about as Eusebius MacKaiser, and I think they are related. The first, of course, is Freedom Day, and the second is Workers' Day. Freedom Day, for me, is an opportunity to do two things every single year. And I feel like a stuck record because it's the same thing every year, but I think there's something beautiful about doing it habitually while paying attention to whether or not qualitatively your answer shifts in these two things. The first thing to do is to take an opportunity and to reflect on what it is that you have good reason to be grateful for in relation to Freedom Day. The second, which is the bit that can change from year to year, decade to decade, is to do what I first labeled, and I think it's a useful framing, Minding the gap. Minding the gap between what happened on this day in history, which was the first democratic elections, and how our vision for our best possible selves got enshrined in the Constitution, and then minding the gap between that vision and the material conditions under which we live. Now, if we start with the first of the two tasks, I feel grateful as someone in my early 40s for the work that had been done by those who came before the rest of us. If you are a South African much older than me, alive, and you had to endure more directly than I did, and younger South Africans coloniality and apartheid in its most brutalizing forms, and you resist it in both small and big ways, we are grateful for the work that you did to lay the foundation for formal political freedom in 1994. And recently, which is something I want to write on separately, I was involved in a series of lectures in Kleberge, sponsored by and jointly co-hosted by Nelson Mandela University and the EP Herald. And one of our events 
we held in Bethelsdorp, which is in the northern suburbs, a predominantly coloured community. And it was really interesting because we debated the concept of non-racialism. And one of my fellow panellists, who's also one of my favourite South Africans, an excellent historian of my generation, uh, Nomalanga Mkize, um, she was really interesting because what Professor Mkize did is that although she agreed with my agitation that we focus on anti-racism and not non-racialism, she first reined us in, and when I say us, I mean my generation and younger South Africans, who are very quick to be ahistorical in how we respond to the work done by those who came before us. There are so many political sins of incumbency that has happened after 1994. There are so many really serious, serious ways in which the ANC-led government in particular is a neo-apartheid state. And that's a tough thing to say as a black South African, but the empirical features of the ANC-led state justify that kind of description conceptually, not just rhetorically. And more and more, there are red flags that suggest we are not beyond description as sliding very quickly towards, if not already just about there, a mafia state. However, despite that, a commemorative day is an opportunity to say, let's actually show historical appreciation for those who laid the foundation for 1994, and simultaneously, but immediately adjacent to that, we can then start a conversation about lost opportunities after 1994. But you have got to, as a young activist, as a writer, as an analyst, do certain things at the same time. You can be trenchant in your analyses about the status quo. You can, with rage, express your disappointment in a black-led government that is anti-black and anti-poor and anti-working class in many ways. And at the same time, you can make sure you distinguish yourself from white supremacists who have flagrant disregard for the unique nature of that crime against humanity called apartheid and flagrant disregard for the bravery and the sustained work over many, many decades, not just of an international community, some parts of the international community that helped to fight the apartheid behemoth, but also ordinary and not so ordinary black leadership and organizations in this country, including the ones that have come to let us down in government. So I think it's important that we take commemorative days seriously and not be ahistorical and glib about the contributions of those who came before us. I once said to Mo Sheikh, when I interviewed him about his book, The ANC Spy, Spy Bible, which is a really brilliant book and still worth reading if you haven't. And I said to him, I don't know, man, whether I would have had the courage had I been born 
15, 20 years earlier to have done what your generation did, to abandon your studies as potential teachers, political analysts, chemists, pharmacists, and to skip the border or to stay as inziles and to contribute in ways that were really, really risky, ending up with being tortured and all sorts of things in prisons. And I think there's a lot of bravery amongst my generation, the fallers generation and the younger generation. But I think it's really important that we do not speak ahistorically and glibly about the incredible contribution and the nature of the contributions made by those who came before us. So that's the one part of my ruminations about Freedom Day. But then, you know, I'm a normative thinker fundamentally and I force myself to be more historical uh, even though that wasn't built into sadly the way legal theory and analytical philosophy were taught to me those were my two majors and I had great teachers but if I have one criticism of how those subjects were taught at my alma mater is that they were often taught in ahistorical ways the upside paradoxically, is that you learn to focus relentlessly on concepts. And for me, when I look at the Constitution, I look at what are the normative standards we are being called upon to meet as an expression of our best possible selves as a society, and then I do the minding the gap analysis. And then it's really hard to be excited about Freedom Day because conceptual analysis around Freedom Day starts with the question what freedom consists in. And you don't need to be a political theorist to appreciate that freedom cannot only be defined in negative terms. It can't just be that you are free to walk the streets without being harassed by the police asking you for a dompas. Freedom can't only be the fact that we have fundamental civil and political rights in place, universal adult suffrage, regular free and fair elections. Freedom, we defined very substantially to include questions of well-being, wellness, quality of life. That's why Section 27, to take but one example of the Bill of Rights, is so important, you have a right to the progressive realization of access to education and healthcare, for example. That's very different to a constitution that only talks about the most obvious civil and political rights, like voting rights. In fact, although not very detailed, our constitution despite being written in the 90s, was already very clear that you also have a right to a clean environment, a safe environment, so-called green rights, third-generation rights. Now everyone talks about these as if it's obvious that any decent government should pay attention to it. Our constitution in that sense was aspirational, um, very much so, 
In fact, my flatmate and one of my best friends wrote a doctoral legal thesis, philosophy thesis, but a philosophy of law thesis on this question of whether or not normative doctrines are useful if it's not clear whether they are feasible. That is how much we recognized that we really are creating a vision of a society that doesn't exist. But that's a good thing because it keeps us honest, it keeps us motivated, and it gives us a clear set of criteria against which to measure where we are at. Which brings me to the most important point I want to make empirically. The reality is that we are fundamentally unfree by the standards we had set for ourselves. We live in a country in which economic growth is less than 0.5%, where inflation is over 7%. If we took out food inflation, that alone would be about 14%. More than 40% of South Africans are not working. Young people who can work or can be at school or in training facilities, but who are not, as a share of that demographic, is easily a share that goes up to about 70%. And that's before we get to 18 million South Africans living not just in poverty, but extreme poverty. And that's before we get to my May Day commentary around wage inequalities and exploitative labor in the extractive industries, the industrial sector, domestic workers, agriculture sector, service industry. And so when we combine the fundamental top-line economic facts with realities about the workplace, if you're lucky enough to have a job at all, plus the numbers of people who are not working, then you have a country that looks anything but free. And the gap between the very ambitious, negative and positive conceptions of freedom enshrined in the Constitution and life in South Africa is huge. It's a huge gap. And it's a gap that's not getting smaller. If anything, it's worsening which is why we're a violent country, gratuitously violent, new forms of violence that are emerging, like kidnappings, for example, things that we've never seen before on the same kind of scale, criminal syndicates, sophisticated cross-border financial crimes that are happening, a safe haven for those who want to clean their money. And that is a country in rapid democratic decline, I'm afraid. And at the same time, we've got many South Africans who listen to this podcast who do not understand how much trouble we are in and still have the audacity of cherry-picking which problems are the only problems or the most important problems. For example, when it comes to Workers' Day, you get a lot of people saying, yeah, workers just like are greedy. South Africans are lazy, unproductive. Go try be a mine worker in Australia. Um, if we want to get more people employed, stop making all of these demands if you are Nehahu. But the truth of the matter is, 
99% of us who are broadly middle class, and we can have a bun fight about how to define that on another day, but certainly if you are a degreed professional working in law, in banking, in the financial sector, you don't have to worry about a garnishy order that takes most of your weekly wages. You don't spend up to 10-15% of your earnings on getting to work. Imagine working to get to work. Yes, many of us who are degreed professionals, myself included, have so-called black tax or technically remittances that we pay, but the same is true of your domestic worker. I wonder how many of you who have domestic workers from Zimbabwe and Malawi are aware that the meager wages you pay them, they often have to go to the CBD in Joburg, go and try and find cheap goods, not just perishables, but all sorts of other materials for family back home. And then there are complicated passageways with drivers that are long-distance drivers that they have to pay to get it across the border. They work enormously hard. The men who drop your food off as Uber Eats drivers that annoy you on the road, or if they're five minutes late, you get you get really pissed off. They can't live on that kind of salary. To say to that kind of person, you should be grateful you have a job at all, there's 40% unemployment, is completely, completely callous and heartless. But it's also, funny enough, from a business point of view, a really counterintuitive attitude to have. And I'll tell you why. And I'll, I'll end shortly after this because I think I've given you enough to, to think through for today. If you have massive wage, asset, wealth inequality, and your median monthly wages in your sector of the economy is really low, with super profits being taken by CEOs, the managerial class or the shareholders. Yeah, you can say that's how markets work and the markets determine the unit price of labor. But that's not how ethics work. There's not a legal obligation for you to settle the question of what the unit price of labor in your office should be by asking, what can I get away with on the market? Nothing stops you from asking, what is a fair wage? What are fair working conditions? You'll get greater loyalty. You'll probably get greater productivity. That, in turn, can lead to the kind of expansion that can then open up possibilities for employing more people and having a multiplier effect in terms of absorbing the unemployed into the economy. But this idea of pitting the exploited worker against their cousin who's desperately roaming around aimlessly, not having a stake in, in our democracy, and it's not just an ethically dubious way to think about the working poor versus the unemployed, it's also going to backfire against us as middle class people and as the class of people who are owners of the means of production. <laughs>